Well, good morning. I had originally intended to talk this morning and continue on the theme that I started last time on <clears throat> looking at um, the nature of craving and greed and grasping and to take that inquiry to a deeper place. Having started last time, and many of you, I think, looked in the last week at instances when there was some clear sense of craving or greed or grasping that came up. How many of you did that practice? Um, yeah. And um, I think some of those themes will come up today, uh, and I'm gonna, but I think I'm going to return to that focus a little bit later. And I, I was... Um, I had a few experiences which led me to another topic. One of them was I was teaching on Sunday at the Marin Sangha in San Rafael. And people there asked me, uh, I had a, you know, another theme in mind, they asked me, what are your reflections in relationship to what's happening in the country related to the uh, killings of... Uh, young black men and the non-indictments and so forth. And they wanted to see how is that connected to our practice? How do we, how do we make those uh, connections? And, and we explored that. And, and there seemed to be a lot of interest in that. And uh, I also personally had an experience last week where uh, I think I had told you some, I, was, uh, I, I went three days to jury duty. <laughs> in Oakland, and the uh, person on trial was a young black man, and uh, it was very interesting. I didn't, I didn't get to say so much about what I experienced, but what I, uh, Wednesday was my, I went after I taught here last Wednesday in the afternoon, spent the whole afternoon there, and was eventually uh, dismissed from the jury. <laughs> I, I w would have been a candidate for the jury, but... Uh, Apparently, the, the prosecuting attorney thought I was not a good fit with her <laughs> intentions. And it was very interesting to see who were the people who were dismissed. The people who were dismissed was first an African-American woman of probably 65 or 70 who said, I believe that young black men are presumed guilty rather than innocent. And she was, she was dismissed <laughs> from, from the jury. And then there was a, a Latino woman who was, I think, I'm not sure why she was dismissed. Her English wasn't great, but might have been that. I'm not sure. And then um, there was uh, uh, about a 40-year-old uh, European-American man who was dismissed uh, by the prosecuting attorney. The first, the first dismissals were by everyone agreed that they should be dismissed. The prosecuting attorney has the right of what's called a peremptory challenge. Some of you know that term. They can just dismiss without cause. And the, so the first person dismissed was a man who, uh, who described himself as an activist and having a lot of interest in what was happening in Ferguson. He was dismissed. And then, uh, and some of you know, in, in, um, in, uh, when one's being... Uh, Invited to be a juror, one has to answer certain questions, such as um, basically, have you had encounters with the law, with police, and so forth? And 
I had to uh, actually answer that I had had encounters with the law. Uh, one, I was arrested for protesting the invasion of Iraq, actually with Sylvia and with Jack Kornfield there and, and with a lot of other people. They, we were, it was a kind of civil disobedience by so-called religious leaders. We were held for three hours and they, I think they didn't want to, someone made a decision not to take us to trial. <laughs> so, um, and then I was also, I don't know if it was arrested, but I was, I, I came and had problems with the law when I was in my uh, earlier midi, middle 20s for uh, skinny dipping. <laughs> in a public reservoir in Massachusetts. <laughs> this is true. And, and so I talked about that. I talked about some other things. I said that when I was young, I actually had experienced harassment by police, and I was, you know, uh, also uh, an activist of sorts when I was young. And I saw a lot of things, and I saw, uh, I saw a number of instances of police brutality when I, th I think the police thought no one was looking. And I actually, one of, one of that, I actually was a filmmaker, and I captured stuff on film. And so I said all this, and uh, I was dismissed. <laughs> so that made me maybe reflect some, a uh, uh, close look at the criminal justice system, so, so it's called. Um, so what I decided to do, actually, was to uh, speak on the theme of race, racism, and our spiritual practice. And um, it's not a topic we usually explore very much. And some of you may be feeling, uh, oh, I really wanted to explore craving and greed. <laughs> oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> you know, and some of you may feel a little uncomfortable. It's a topic which is not always very comfortable to look at. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that we stay together and explore this. And so what I want to do is to uh, say some about the topic uh, really explore this, and I, I actually just decided this like on uh, Sunday night, and I've had busy days, so I actually stayed up late last night and was working on this, so. and it's a huge topic, and I want to um, do what I think is helpful. So I want to generally uh, say a few, word, a few more words of introduction, then I want to particularly look to the core teachings, which are helpful in letting us look at this and the practices and skills which can really be helpful for us. Um, I want to also do uh, give some history, actually give some history of uh, race and racism because they are actually fairly recent concepts and developments, as, as probably as many of you know. They, uh, and they have very strange origins. Uh, you know, of course, oppression of human beings is very old, but the concept of race uh, was invented, you know, in the, uh, at the end of the 1600s for a very particular reason. It's very interesting to see that. So, and then I want to uh, have the last section be a sense of uh, how do we actually respond or what's, how, what's, what does our practice look like in terms of, of, of responding. And of course, all of this is in part in relationship to um, what's happened in the last, really, the last few months in terms of the killings and particularly, I think, the, the uh, non-indictments of the police. And a lot of people are very concerned in many ways. Um, 
Uh, I thought I'd begin with uh, uh, two, two readings. One is a short one from uh, Dr. King. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And then a reading from uh, Jan Willis, who's an African-American Buddhist teacher. And she just wrote this a few days ago. It's a, uh, it's a passage called Why We Can't Breathe, which I think most of you know what that reference is to, right? And probably how many of you have actually seen the video of uh, Eric Garner? You know? So it's very disturbing, uh, but it's very available, you know, because someone actually videotaped what was happening. That's what makes that uh, non-indictment a little even more uh, troubling in any ways, because it was all right there. Um, and she said this, we can't breathe. In Buddhist meditation, our breathing is essential. Anapana, meditation on the breath, was the Buddha's first meditation instruction and the basis for all further meditative endeavors. Breathing is not only life-sustaining and calming, it is a foremost teaching aid. Breathing, we sense immediately, our necessary connection to what is other than ourselves. Without the exchange of air, inner and outer, we would die. We are not independent, we are dependent. We are interdependent, we are connected with one another. We breathe the same air. That air is neither black nor white. We share the life force of all. If one of us cannot breathe, none of us can breathe fully and deeply. And we no longer experience our connection with one another. If Eric Garner cannot breathe, then we cannot breathe. If Michael Brown no longer breathes, we cannot breathe. If Tamir Rice does not breathe, we cannot breathe. Something is mightily broken, she says. A hard rock of sadness and pain rolls itself up in our hearts and we cannot breathe. We must do something swiftly and nonviolently to right the moral compass because at this moment none of us can breathe. That's uh, Jan Willis. And so how do, we, how do we connect this with our practice? Um, and some may feel that there isn't a very easy connection right, with our practice. Often our practice is interpreted primarily as something individual, you know, as something that we do on our own for individual peace. You know, and there's, uh, I think there's a challenge that we have of finding ways to connect our practice with our response to the needs of the world. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's the foremost translator of texts uh, into English of the Pali Canon, he wrote a very interesting essay in 2007 called A Challenge to Buddhist. And this is what he said. This is, again, he's a monk who's totally dedicated to the project of awakening and is the foremost translator of the whole Pali Canon. You can see his translations in the bookstore. He said this, it seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth of suffering largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles. He might have added mostly our middle-class white lifestyles. He didn't, he didn't add that word, but we might add that as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or the Bauda Buddhist theory, bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious 
to the vast catastrophic suffering that overwhelms daily three-fourths of the world's population. Right? So he's, he called that a challenge to, to our practice. You know? And there's, a very, there's also a very powerful sense of that that uh, is there from uh, uh, Gary Snyder, who wrote this in 1964. Listen to this. The poet uh, Gary Snyder, who lives in um, near Nevada City, um, and is in his 80s, a great, a great teacher. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Consequently, the major concern of Buddhist philosophy is epistemology, which means the way we know, and psychology, with no attention paid to historical or sociological problems. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals. And institutional Buddhism has often been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. He goes on to say, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal examples and responsible action ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. Right? It's 1964, quite something, right? And so how do we how do we work with our teachings, our core teachings? And I want to talk particularly about two teachings which are really, I think, can guide us in looking at uh, questions of race and racism. The first is the teaching of compassion. Really, the two teachings are the teachings of compassion and the teachings of wisdom. You know, and it's often said that the Dharma is like a bird that has two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing, the wing of compassion. And uh, I've always liked the fact that in the 20th century in Vietnam, and I've sometimes mentioned this, in Vietnam they felt a need to add a third aspect of the, the path to this you know, 1,000, 1,500 year, 2,000 year old tradition of emphasizing wisdom and compassion. They said, we need wisdom and compassion and courage. And I've always tended to connect courage with the body, with action, with the body of the bird, <laughs> right? Can't just fly with two wings, needs a body, <laughs> right? And so uh, we, we can think of that, but I'll particularly emphasize here initially uh, compassion, which means how we relate to suffering, and then wisdom, how we understand the roots of suffering, and then later get to the question of action, of how we, how we respond. So in our, in our individual practice, being with suffering, with difficulty, is right at the heart of the practice. Obviously, it's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is seeing the roots of suffering. 
And so part of our training involves this ability to be with the uncomfortable, to be with the unpleasant, to actually be willing to go into difficulty and suffering, into pain, right? That is our training, right? It's a huge part of our practice. Um, Originally, I didn't think that was the aim of my practice. I thought the aim of my practice was bliss and understanding and wisdom. And I achieved those for a year or so of my meditation, and then suffering arrived. <laughs> you know, I can remember, you know, then, and this is familiar, especially if you do retreats. Uh, there are times when being with difficulty, whether it's the physical discomfort of sitting for long periods or the, the uh, probably more deeply, the pain of just seeing one's own mind, one's own habits, one's past habits, one's self-judgment, one's fear, one's anxiety, one's residue from the past, and so forth. And the training that we have is to be skillful with all of that, right? First of all, it's to open to it and to say, this is not a problem. I want, I commit to opening to the entirety of my experience. We often say in retreats, no part left behind, right? And that is a commitment and a training. And we know how to do that pretty well in terms of our individual practice. And we can, we can have the teachings of suffering. We also have the teachings of compassion, both for self and for other. And we, we don't always know so well how to do that, how to work with suffering relationally or collectively, right? That's, you know, uh, often our practice is especially defined in terms of what we do individually. And yet, so how do we actually work with responding to the suffering of others? How do we actually bring that compassion? And I think we know some things on that, but we still have a lot to learn. You know, we can, uh, how do we relate to the suffering in the society? We can learn from a variety of sources. You know, I'm thinking I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself by talking about practices, but we can, for example, uh, learn how to be with the suffering of a group or an organization. And we can be skillful with working with conflicts. Some of my interest, as many of you know, has been to bring these teachings into both relational context and into collective context, right? We can learn from people like Joanna Macy, who have developed very beautiful practices to open up to the suffering of uh, the world and open, the up, open up to the suffering of um, groups and organizations. And I've been with her at times where we've been with organizations where there's been turmoil and conflict, and we find ways to be skillful and open up to that pain. You know, and generally, we only teach that on the margins here, that we primarily focus in an inner way. But those teachings of working with um, suffering in a relational context, in a group, in a community, in an organization, as well as how do we do that on a larger scale. And again, I've learned a lot from studying uh, processes like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from South Africa. And I did, I did once, uh, I spent some time once with one of the commissioners of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There were 15 people. Desmond Tutu was the leader, and there's some beautiful films on this. 
And they devised a collective practice which opened up to the pain of apartheid, you know, of the, the pain and suffering of what? At least 50, 100 years, maybe going back further, right? And it was a very ambitious, beautiful process. I, I later did a, some writing on that, which maybe I can make accessible to the group. You know, I did an interview with uh, a Bangani Blessing Finca, who was on the commission, and really explored what happened and how this was possible. So there are processes that can go into collective pain and go into collective suffering. And it was, what happened in South Africa, by my reading, was the most advanced way of doing this that had existed in the history of the planet. And it had its uh, limitations. They didn't deal with uh, uh, addressing structural issues or reparations, things like that. But they, they, uh, they opened up a process that, that made possible a considerable amount of healing. So there are things we can learn from. We as a community don't know these so well. The, se- the second teaching is the teaching of, uh, of wisdom. And this is really uh, something that we've explored a lot, you know, which is particularly understood in Buddhist tradition as uh, really seeing where we're ignorant. You know, and it's this um, paradoxical practice where we open up by coming to know what we don't know or coming to know what we didn't originally know. Having a tradition which emphasizes ignorance and sees ignorance as something deep, not simply lack of knowledge of facts or details. Um, th- it's really the, the deep sense in our tradition is that there is a fundamental spiritual ignorance that is understood um, classically in three main ways. It's understood as an ignorance about change and impermanence. We take things to be much more solid than they are. And I would add that that solidity can include racism. We may think this is much more solid than it is. Right? But we know in history that things sometimes change very quickly, like in South Africa, like in the former Soviet Union, where systems can shift. Or even, you know, at some point slavery ended. Right? There was a civil rights movement. Things can shift. These are impermanent. And so having deep insight into impermanence covers over or, let's say, uh, works through our tendency to see things as much more solid. A lot of that is because of the way we conceptualize. A lot of it is because we don't have adequate concentration to see what's happening moment to moment. This is something we develop in retreats. We can actually see how we are constructing the world moment to moment, how we are solidifying things how our concepts and our ideas make something more solid, like this is why I'm to blame. We have a story, right? And we make it really solid, right? And a lot of our practice, which has to incur with a lot of compassion, is to see impermanence. It's to see how we don't really understand the roots of suffering and freedom. And we think that we'll gain happiness by grasping onto things, whether it's objects or security or a relationship or an idea or a position or even a sense of self. And that the teaching is a radical one and it's a very deep one and it's one which is incredibly challenging. You know? And one of the things that I want to say is that you think racism is challenging? 
try awakening. <laughs> you think dealing with large-scale socialism is challenging? Try looking at the process of what awakening means. It's, a, it's deep and unfathomable, right? You know? And I think that's a good perspective, because we're all committed to that, right? And actually, um, I don't want to say that uh, you know, transforming racism and getting rid of it is a piece of cake compared to awakening. But it's uh, um, when racism is gone, awakening will still be there as a as a goal. Yeah. I don't know if that's clear the way I say it, said that, but it's uh, probably could say that a little more clearly. But maybe you get what I'm saying. Um, and so that that we have this ignorance about the roots of suffering. We also have a kind of ignorance of um, who we are. You know, that the teachings are that when we see ourselves clearly, we see ourselves as radically interdependent, not quite so separate and solid as we think we are. You know, and th- these are, again, are radical teachings. And I have to say that in my experience teaching, the teaching of the lack uh, of a separate self is the most confusing teaching for Westerners steeped in individualism. <laughs> And maybe for you, that's been a hard one. Okay, I, I get suffering. Okay, I get that. <laughs> but self, not self, that's very confusing. Now, one of the ways that has been helpful for me in looking at um, the question of ignorance, and I've taught this here. I gave that series of talks called The Anatomy of Ignorance. And giving that series of talks really helped me to see uh, broadly that there are three main forms of ignorance. I called one of them more personal or psychological ignorance. I called another the ignorance related to social conditioning. And a third was this existential or spiritual ignorance, which I just described. And one, I think part of the understanding that is emerging in our time is that partly uh, due to Western traditions, we have a much better understanding of the psychological roots of ignorance and suffering than was available at the time of the Buddha. We have these psychological traditions which can say, okay, this happened in your early childhood. You know, development was constricted there. You, know, you were eight years old and there was a divorce. You took in, you developed the core belief that people close to me will leave. And that affected how you related in relationships, right? And we have psychological work that can uncover. That's a kind of ignorance. If I go along with that sense of anyone I get close to will abandon me, which is one of many possible psychological core beliefs, that's a kind of ignorance driving me. I'm not aware of that. You know, in the psychological traditions called the unconscious, right? And clarifying that is very, very helpful. You know, a lot of the work I do with the judgmental mind goes right into seeing what people's core beliefs are that are connected with tremendous suffering that we don't necessarily uncover all the time on the meditation cushion. Sometimes other tools are necessary. And I think the same thing goes for the social conditioning, that there are forms of social conditioning that we have, and you know, we've explored this at some length, that are connected with suffering that can be worked with. You know, most of us probably know this very well with something like gender, right? Where we see what we've internalized from the society around gender. 
what our friends or partners have internalized, and these have to be dealt with. You know, for me, actually personally, one of the most exciting aspects of being in close relationships is working with those issues. You know, it can be, I find, you know, this looking into our conditioning, our social conditioning can be scary or difficult. It also can be exhilarating because we're uncovering things. And I'm sure uh, most of us have looked at certain parts of our social conditioning. We haven't necessarily done it so deeply with something like race. You know, it's harder. The, the venues aren't always there. Um, but you get that sense of the social, the social conditioning that leads to ignorance. You know, again, I see it especially in terms of ways that we internalize the messages of the society and they can form judgments. You know, one way of saying is that we internalize from the society uh, that uh, some people are better than others. You know, and we have a whole list of probably 10 or 15 or 20 different classifications which in certain ways a mainstream says these people are better. You know, white over black, male over female, young over older, um, heterosexual over uh, um, non-heterosexual, you know, um, certain religions have priority and so forth. This, this is, these are the dominant models, right? And many of us have dealt with a lot of the aspects of all this, right? And, and we internalize those messages. So, you know, I, I've sometimes cited the study of African-American girls with dolls from the 1940s and early 50s where African-American girls were asked, they were given a white doll and a black doll, which is the good doll, which is the bad doll. And they said the white doll is the good one, the black one is the bad one. Age six, age seven, age nine. Sometimes they were asked which doll is like you. Not everyone could answer that question because the cognitive dissonance got too great, right? That's heartbreaking, right? That is heartbreaking, but that is the reality. And you know what? Some people have done studies in the last few years. It's not that different, as you could imagine. What's the message a young black man who's poor gets every day, right? You're scary, you're bad, and so forth. And so we get that message that uh, they are less than, or if I'm on the downside of one of these hierarchies, I'm less than, right? And the, the, what, for me, one of the uh, realities which actually helps to really have energy to inquire into all of this is the fact that we all are on the downside of some of these hierarchies, if not now, then at some point in our lives because of aging, right? And, and so for me, that gives some freedom to say, yeah, and, and you know, and, and uh, now some people have a lot of the downsides in their own being, right? But all of us experience this or will experience it. And we were all children, so we all had a certain way we were devalued or not seen as, uh, not seen accurately for our maturity, I would say, right? So we have that experience. We, and for me, that actually gives a certain freedom to say, basically, uh, these are different social systems and I'm not all bad <laughs> because in this case I'm white, right? That is extremely helpful because we know the forces of guilt and fear and confusion make looking into this very hard. 
And and so for me, that framework really helps. It kind of can permit a no guilt and no shame approach as much as possible. You know, because we say, okay, there is a larger system, but here's what I'm looking at now. So I don't use that fact of what we might call multiple oppressions to make me say, okay, we're all equal, we're all oppressed, you know, and then not look at some, not look at race. That's a defense mechanism. Right? So, so that, uh, and the, so the other side of this is we also internalize the message, I'm better than, right? And that we don't look at so much because partly when we're on the upper end of one of these hierarchies, part of what it means is that we don't have to look at it, right? If I'm a man, I don't have to look at, at my assumptions, unless I'm confronted, hopefully in a friendly way, right? And, uh, but we don't have to look at certain things. We take the situation, I'm just, I'm just being a human being, right? I'm normal. And so that aspect of, of uh, social conditioning is a, and social seeing the ignorance is very, very helpful. And this is where some looking at history can be very, very helpful. And so I'm, uh, it's very, very helpful, for example, to know that the concept of race is a social construct. It has no biological reality. I think many of us know that, right? Maybe we haven't looked at it so carefully. Do you know that reality? Yeah. It is a social construct that is a kind of an illusion that has tremendous power to be connected with suffering. Now, from a Buddhist point of view, knowing that it's a construct is very helpful and it really connects with our practice because we can say, oh, if it's a construct, that means it's um, impermanent, it was born, and it will die. <laughs> and it's also something that since it was constructed, it can be deconstructed. That is very, very helpful to know that. So it's not, uh, and so maybe just to say a little bit more of the basis, um, that there's actually no gene or trait or characteristic connected with the so-called race at all. No, uh, as it were, African-Americans share any particular gene or trait. In fact, it's said that um, um, there is way more genetic variation between an in, be, uh, within an individual community, within a local community, that uh, 85% of the differences are entirely local. So for that what that means is two randomly chosen Koreans will be just as different genetically as a Korean and an Italian on a gen- genetic basis, in terms of social construction and so forth. Now this is talking about the totality of genetic variation, right? Um, the gene, in other words, the genes for skin color are not connected particularly with the genes for hair texture of hair and so forth. That doesn't mean that there are certain people who share a lot of outward characteristics, but from a biological point of view, it's, there's no basis for it. You know, and I think that's, that I'm not reporting a fringe view, right? This is pretty much the mainstream. Well, it is the mainstream view. And, and there, I think there are not people who really question this as far as I know. That's very important. So it's, it's a very interesting to see the history of race <coughs> and to, to look at that history and then to see how that's played out 
in the U.S. Um, essentially, the concept of race developed in the 1600s. Other cultures saw differences in a different way. For example, the ancient Greeks, when they were <laughs> assessing differences, they focused on whether someone spoke Greek or not. You know what, uh, a you know, and they had the term barbarians. There were the Greeks and the barbarians. You know who the barbarians were? Those who didn't speak Greek. Could a barbarian become a non-barbarian? Yes. Right? And actually the word, I think the word barbarian literally means someone who stutters. So it meant someone who didn't speak well. Right? And in other cultures, again, differences did not go with the concept of race. And they typically didn't go with the concept of permanence in the sense that you inherit the down status. You know, there's been slavery in most cultures, probably, historically, which is kind of shocking, but it's the case, you know. And I was a little, I remember going up to spending time in native communities in British Columbia and being somewhat shocked to learn the history and to know that slavery was extremely widespread and that 25% of the people in a given time would be slaves in a given society. Uh, slavery was generally what happened after wars. Prisoners were taken and they were actually permitted to integrate within the, within the community and within a generation or two there'd be no difference. Slavery was not permanent and it was not inheritable as far as I know. And there was not a concept of being fundamentally uh, different that was associated with so, so the concept of race develops starting in the uh, late 1600s. And um, it's, it's, it becomes the justification for slavery. It's very helpful, I think, to know the history. And probably some of us uh, know this. And so, in, and, and this particularly developed in Virginia. What was happening in Virginia in the 1650s, around that time, was that actually uh, social identities were extremely fluid. And there were people uh, you know, slavery had started with the coming of the slaves, you may remember, 1619, which was pretty much right when the pilgrims came, right? <laughs> right at that same time. So slavery started in Virginia, but there, was, there were very uh, fluid social identities. There, was not rid there were not rigid accounts. There were uh, indentured servants from Europe. There were uh, slaves. There were, uh, there were people who were no longer slaves from Africa. And they were all mixing freely. And they were marrying, having relationships. There were not rigid. There was not a rigid system. Um, in 1676, there was what was called Bacon's Rebellion. Guess what? The poor whites and the poor blacks got together. The ruling elites did not like that. They thought it quite dangerous, right? And so they started forming laws that made everything way more rigid. And they started using the word white, which I think was first used around 1700. And they started saying, here are uh, the laws. Before, before that time, there was no concept of white. People were called Englishmen or sometimes called Christians. And so at that time, they wanted to have rigid separations. Slavery became permanent at that time. It wasn't permanent up till then. Slavery became permanent. Blacks became identified 
slavery became inheritable, all sorts of laws were passed. Laws were passed, for example, that a slave uh, being property could be killed without a crime being committed. All sorts of laws were passed. There, these were called the slave codes. And the, the alliances which had been there between whites, what we would now call whites and blacks, started to shift. And there was a sense more that the working people started to identify more with the wealthy white rulers. And so uh, over time, race became a concept, was developed scientifically. In the uh, 1700s, many of you know some of the people who did that, it became a scientific concept. People like uh, Linnaeus and uh, Blumenbach started to develop uh, scientific models of the races of man, so-called, became part of the accepted science of the time, which lasted in various ways uh, through to almost the middle of the 20th century. You know? and, and of course was ultimately shown not to be valid science. You know? and, and you can, you can see that. You can see that uh, maybe a few other words. I, I, could sit, I could talk about this. I find this totally fascinating. Um, there was the con so there was the construction of white, there was also the construction of black. They had not existed before. And interestingly, whites were defined in two ways in terms of our history. And this is very interesting. Whites were uh, defined in terms of immigration law in a very broad way. And people could immigrate and become citizens who were defined as freeborn white. This was a law that was passed in 1790. And it became the basis probably for most of our ancestors coming here if they didn't come before. You know, so people from all over Europe came. There was also, whiteness was also understood socially and that was often in contradiction with the naturalization law. For a large part of the history, whites were understood as primarily or almost exclusively people of Anglo stock from England or the British Isles, right? And people from other parts of Europe were often understood as belonging to a different race. And this reached its high point probably in the turn of the century, the 1920s, and had a, a lot of uh, ramifications, right? There were um, uh, people typically of, who were not connected with that were often discriminated against, couldn't get housing, you know, um, even up through the 1950s and 60s, this happened with Italians. Some of you probably know that. You know, with Italians, with people from Eastern Europe were restricted from immigrating. Uh, certain 1924 laws uh, were not seen as fully white. There's a book that I've, that I've read called How Jews Became White Folk. It basically happened, I like to joke, around 1953. Uh, on a social level, for the purposes of immigration, they were white, but for social purposes, they weren't. And so there were restrictive laws, housing covenants. My father was not able to um, go to medical school because of quotas. There were quotas against Jews that went in the Ivy League schools up through the early 1960s. It's only with the 1960s that we have the current sense of whites being people broadly from European background. Before that, socially, it was quite different. So it's quite complex here, right, you see, and very, very, uh, 
So I find it fascinating. You can see how it's a shifting, impermanent concept. Right? And I was going to give some of the history of, uh, you know, take us through some of the movements of the history of uh, African Americans. Just and maybe I don't know. Else, I may do that with another another talk. You know, to take us through the history of really tuning into what slavery was about. You know, which uh, and, you know is almost unthinkable, right? And some of you may have been educated further by seeing a film like Twelve Years a Slave. How many people saw that film, right? And it's almost unthinkable, you know, and it was, uh, um, um, it's been called by many authors crimes against humanity, right? Which they were. There's, there's a lot of denial about this. I think historically there have never been apologies given by the government for slavery, believe it or not. There were attempts in the 1990s, but the Republicans were in charge and they wouldn't allow it to go through believe it or not. You know, and there, so there were these processes of slavery which are almost unimaginable in terms of the brutality. The license to kill, the rape, the everyday violence. You know. And you know, then there's this period, again I'm being very brief here, there's this period after the Civil War when there's this movement where there is what seems to be like a learning process happening in the country where slavery is abolished. That is amazing, isn't it? It's really, that happened, right? And then there, but then there's a movement where there's some degree of freedom, some greater degree of freedom, and then things, especially in the South, clamp down. And we have what's called Jim Crow develops. Lynchings are very uh, common, right? Um, and this goes up, this, this process of uh, kind of institutional violence goes up till the 1950s, the civil rights movement, where, again, there's a major shift that occurs, a major learning. You know, I'm, I want to suggest that our time is opening up to another major learning, you know, and I hope that we all want to be part of that. And so there's this civil rights movement, and after that there's a kind of reaction to some of the gains, and you can interpret a lot of what happened in the 70s, 80s, and then as, to, as a kind of retrenchment, right? You have the drug laws occur in the 1980s, which uh, target, I think most of you probably know, target African Americans unduly. It's pretty well documented that, for example, for certain types of drug use, the amount of drug use by whites and blacks is the same. The incarceration rate is four times that for African Americans, right? That's pretty well, that's well documented. You know, and there are books like uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which probably some of you have read, which is a very powerful documentation of how we've come to the point where now, in some ways, things are still very, very bad, even though there's been a lot of improvement, much larger black middle class and so forth. So we still have, I think, 40% of African American children are in poverty. One of three African-American men spend time in prison or connect with the system. Large numbers of those who are in prison can't vote, can't get housing, can't get food stamps because they're felons, right? And there's this whole system where the, you know, in Oakland when I was on that jury there were very few African-Americans there. Large degree of disenfranchisement and so forth. So we know that it's actually 
They're very, you know, let alone all the questions of police issues. So I could document all of that more, and I think many of you know that. So what to do, okay? How to respond, how to connect that with our practice. I like, and I'll, I'm going to be necessarily brief here because of time, I like to, I like to divide uh, our practice in my own sense. This has come out of uh, time of trying to develop what we sometimes call an engaged Buddhist practice, that I found it helpful to talk about individual practice that we primarily do on our own, um, relational practice that's more in a community that we do with others, and, then, and that comes into how we work with our relationships, and then our collective practice, how we respond to the larger society. And I think, and for me, it's helpful to see these three areas and to also see them as interconnected, you know, that we know that some of our inner work is about dealing with what we've internalized, you know, as, for example, we internalize gender, we internalize race. That's, we, do in, we can do inner work with what we've internalized, very, very crucial. So here I'll just give a, uh, like a snapshot of some ways that make sense to me, because can, this can be very confusing. We can have our hearts open, we can say there's tremendous suffering, and there's always the question for many people, what do I do? How do I respond? Because I think we want to respond, we want to, but there can be some confusion about how to do so. So um, I have to say first that our tools of mindfulness being able to be with difficult emotions, developing skillful speech, developing empathy and compassion. These are um, crucial for doing all of this work at all three levels, right? And so I think our core practice is crucial, and I think people who don't have the abilities which we have will not be able to do this work so well. It'll get very easily into judgments, blaming, polarization, getting caught in anger, and so forth. So I think that there's a natural way that there's a lot that we can offer and there's a lot that we can learn. That's, that for me, that's a hopeful way of holding all of this. I think there are other tools that I think are very important. I think we need to know how to work better with conflict. We probably each need to do certain kinds of work around, um, around exploring race. One thing that we can do on an individual level, clearly we can educate ourselves better. We can study the history. We can look at what's happening now. We can see films. We can listen to the experiences of others. The level of education about race in our society is very poor. You know, I, I think I read some statistic that a large percentage of the history teachers in the South don't even have never studied history in college. <laughs> And the history is, is poor, and of course it's politicized, right? History books is very, very politicized. And there's a large amount of denial, right, of what happened, right? We have, we have our, our, our friends cleaning the gutters for anyone in the larger audience who's wondering what's happening. Uh, we can also, on an individual level, explore the nature of whiteness with other white people. Or if we are black, we can explore how we've internalized oppression. I've had black friends who've been in groups sometimes for many years looking at internalized oppression because it's right there. You know, it's in everyone, you know. 
I remember a story from Desmond Tutu where he said he noticed when there were troubles on, the, uh, on an airplane where he was flying, he said, I'm glad I, I found myself having the thought, I hope it's a white pilot. Right? So, so you see the honesty and no shame approach has to be there because he was, he was very, he acknowledged that. There's, so this gets internalized, right? It's not just, not just polarized. So we can do that work. We can talk with each other. You know, we've been having some groups with uh, Dharma teachers where we're looking into that and how it affects our teaching. One can do that with small groups, with a friend. I've been thinking of setting something up maybe for the fall next year. That would be groups where people would look into these things, classes, to see this as a form of practice. I had a, a vision once. I, it was very interesting. I was, I was doing a one-month self-retreat a um, year and a half ago. And I was, had almost no thoughts going on. I was about three weeks into this uh, retreat, had a lot of calm and peace. And suddenly, for a morning, I had almost like a download from somewhere saying about a curriculum for deconstructing whiteness as spiritual practice. <laughs> it lasted for two or three hours. I wrote it down. Then I went on with my rest of my retreat. Interesting. Yeah, interesting, right? It's uh, interesting how that happens sometimes. And so I have an interest in that. And we don't have that many vehicles, but we can, we can do that on an individual level. It means partly looking at understanding privilege the concept of privilege, where, where I think I'm better than, how that manifests you know, in certain things. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of good resources there. Maybe I can say more. Uh, one, of course, can really start to study one's mind around these issues. Watch your thoughts, watch your mind, watch how it works, right? There's a lot we can do there. Um, notice, notice the thoughts. A lot of them are going to be embarrassing because we like to think of ourselves as good people, right? A lot of these are going to be, did I just think that? Whoa. <laughs> and that's, that's okay, right? Because uh, we have to see this as a learning process. Um, on a relational level, we can, we can look into these issues in our organizations, in our families, in our communities. We can look into that at Spirit Rock. A lot of people are wanting to do that. These are not easy issues. But we can do that uh, institutionally. We can uh, be willing to speak up when we hear... Uncle Johnny speaking in a racist way <laughs> at the holiday table, if that occurs. And you have to be skillful and compassionate and empathic, but one can do that. This is sometimes called being an ally. <laughs> right? And to, to, in, to be willing to intervene. This is part of what, what transformation looks like. Um, there's a lot more I could say about all that. At a collective level, it's harder to know what to do. I say there are processes that have been done in other countries, like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What would that be like to have that in the U.S.? Amazing. Pretty amazing, right? And it's a vision. It's happened in 20 different countries after difficult past, right? It hasn't happened here. Reparations have happened in many countries. You know, Germany, particularly, has done a lot of very good things after the Holocaust. You, know, you can study what they've done. Reparations, apologies, education, public debates. Not perfect, a lot of limitations. It took 30 years before, a lot, before the d- discussions happened. The reparations happened early. The apologies happened early. Other countries have done it in better ways than we have. Right? You can learn from that. Reparations, 
transforming the institutions, a lot of, you know, work, how does, how does the criminal justice system get changed and so forth. So this is a lot, this is big. This can feel like a lot. Working through all this, I think of racism as the core wound and the core suffering of the country on a collective level, right? If we have a, if we have a commitment to address suffering, to transform suffering, to bring about greater freedom, is this part of our practice? Again, it's confusing, it's big, but like I said, so is awakening. Awakening is unfathomable. Actually, transforming racism is a little more fathomable in some ways. It's interesting. I mean, there are ways that it's it's possible to imagine it being different in 100 years or 200 years. And so I hope that vision can be helpful. So I want to finish with uh, a reading from a a poet, African-American poet named June Jordan, which is about this large, taking on this large task. Anytime you decide to take on a mountain, you just better take good care. This is actually in an essay on Martin Luther King called The Mountain and the Man Who Was Not God. Okay. Anytime you decide to take on a mountain, you just better take care. It's not about running out of the house. It's not about come as you are. It's not about breaking down that mighty, miraculous fact of the earth into little pieces or clumps of dirt that you feel you can comfortably deal with. Anytime you decide to take on a mountain, think racism, think awakening, the irreducible is that you're taking on something mysterious, something huge, something more enormous than you can ever hope to hold between your hands or even between your ears. Let me stop there. Maybe just sit for a few moments. So how many of you, we're we're getting close to 11, how many of you would be willing to take five or seven minutes to stay and see if there's discussion? And and how many people, if you need to go, it's okay to go right now, but let's stay for those who wish to for maybe six or seven minutes and then we'll finish right about uh, five after 11. So time for some questions or comments if there are any. Let's, let's wait for the mic. <clears throat> I just want to. Yeah. I want to thank you for this teaching. Um, it's a teaching that needs to be taught, and thank you for having the courage to take on the mountain. Yeah. Um, and and I'm grateful to have this kind of a safe environment to, to think about these very difficult yeah. issues. Yeah, thank you. I did have a little bit of trepidation, <laughs> to be honest. I wasn't, yeah. 
Um, and they're over here. Thank you. It was a very synchronistic day for me. Um, I just returned from West Africa and um, visited the rest of the slave castles that I missed on my previous trips. And racism is alive in Africa, too. So I just wanted to yeah, thank you. bring that up. I uh, participated in the Board of Supervisors meeting last uh, yesterday afternoon where they did approve the affordable housing mm -hmm. for the County of Marin. Just, just to put it in perspective, San Francisco has required 40,000 units of affordable housing. Oakland's required 10,000 units of affordable housing. And Marin County is, is required 221 units of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So because of how much uh, conflict in this county, uh, Marin County uh, is only required 1% of the Bay Area affordable housing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to say tonight at Book Passage, um, there will be more of a discussion on this at 7 o'clock. Mm -hmm if anyone wants to come. Thanks. Thank you. And of course, you know, when we look to some of the collective level responses, it would have to do with jobs, with housing, you know, and um, personally, I, I would, if there's a deep commitment, I could see, like, basically, if we used a fraction of what we've used for the wars of the last 15 years, you know, like, the, you know, I don't know, Five hundred billion dollars. You know, the Iraq War was what several trillion, right? Yeah. Um, we used uh, five hundred billion dollars. It probably would go a very far, long way in terms of um, kind of reparations, but really recognizing that the past has doesn't just go away, right? Has effects in terms of uh, training, education housing and all these things and um, you know, so there's a lot you know we could we could look at these different institutional levels as all being important some of you may feel called to work with those yeah they're all ways of responding please Maria In dealing with what we've been talking about, I feel that there's something missing in my personal experience, and that is direct contact with these minorities. And yep. it's, they're not in my life here. Right. And I wish I wish there was a way that they, you know, that that I did have more uh, yeah. contact. Yeah. Yeah. And so the question of actual uh, lack of contact for many white people with uh, other than white people. Uh, to any significant extent, right? That's that's common. How, you know, how many how many can relate to that? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, how to work with that, right? But that's partly partly just hearing from others. And of course, one can you know hear from others through reading, through films, through other ways. Where you can uh, you know one of the projects which I'm involved with, the East Bay Meditation Center, is is a quite amazing project for. Um, really working with these issues, t 
totally in the context of the Dharma practice. You know, it's in a beautiful center in downtown Oakland. I teach there a number of times a year. I'll be uh, yeah, teaching there next in February, but you can actually go there and uh, practice there, do day-longs there. Can, and, and you would, um, some of the events that are day-longs have 30, 40, 50 percent people of color at the day-longs. It's an interesting, from, personally, it's, it's a different experience teaching there. It feels, something feels more like, I don't know, I was going to use the word more natural, but maybe I don't know if that's the right word, but it, there's something that uh, uh, bring, uh, just brings out different kinds of learning. So thank you for being willing to say that. Yeah. Maybe time for one more. Yeah. All right, I'll just make a comment and then uh, yeah. an observation. Um, the they are not minority. Yeah. They are not in the minority. Right. Um, my wife and I have had the marvelous fortune of adopting two children, yeah. transnational, and we've run into incidences of overt racism directed toward either us or the daughters in their presence which is very painful. The issue of response is yeah. very important yeah. to know, recognize, yeah. and how to deal with what our daughters are hearing and how we're in internalizing it um, in a visceral manner. Yeah. And, and uh, racism is alive and well in America. Yeah. And a marvelous book to read is uh, uh, the Imperial Cruise, which took place uh, 1900 from San Francisco and goes to Asia. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And I'll just mention two books which I'm reading at the current time. One of them is called White Like Me by Tim Wise, W-I-S-E, and there are a lot of YouTube videos. Another one is called Waking Up White. The other book I mentioned was The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Those, those would could be very helpful as part of education. And I think what you mentioned is very significant. I, I read just in the last few days an estimate that uh, because of uh, particularly uh, marriage but also adoption, as many as um, as many as 30, I don't know if I have the number right, but as many as 30 or 40 percent of families are either either of color or multiracial. Blended. Yeah. yeah, blended in some way. And those experiences are becoming more common, right? Are becoming more common and there's tremendous um, energy, I'm sure, on your part to respond, right? Yeah, and, and, and that, that's something hopeful, right? That be, you know, because of that uh, blending or whatever we call that, that there are a lot of people, you know, it, it, it's clear that one often acts when you feel a more personal stake, right? Act sometimes more fully. So that's actually happening. There's a hopeful, a hopeful development, I would say. But thank you. Thank you for your comment. So um, how many of you would be interested in another session related to this theme? Okay. Okay, thank you. I'm, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure it would be a one-time thing. Okay, I've done that. You know, uh, not that I was thinking that. I, I probably could do five or eight, but 
Um, I'll, I'll think of that. We'll get back to craving, greed, and <laughs> grasping, which, again, is not disconnected from all this. <laughs> right? And, um, yeah, and thank you, thank you so much for, uh, for staying with us and being here. And um, we'll continue to explore. So let's just finish with two short reflections. The first is if there's an intention for you coming out of our time this morning, let that be there for you. And then we we close with our traditional ending, a dedication of merit, which is is um, really a statement of wisdom and intention about interconnection. We recognize that we practice. We practice for ourselves, for our own well-being, and we also practice for others, ultimately all others. May our practice be of benefit for all others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.